Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Room. Uh, today we are handling some overflow questions that came out of our, came out of our ACT series. And it's, it's really interesting um, that every time we ask for questions from our community, yep. um, sometimes we get questions that aren't at all related to the teaching series um, that we just went through. So we're gonna be tackling, yeah, just questions that, are, that came totally out of left field. Um, so to kick us off, Jimmy, why do bad things happen to good people? <laughs> hey, everybody. My name's Dan. I'm here with Jimmy today. And yeah, we're going to be tackling some questions that came out of the Axe series that aren't actually related to Axe. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Jimmy, we're going to start off with uh, a fun one. Um, the fear of God is a term that gets thrown around all the time within Christian circles. Yep. Um, certainly something I heard a lot about growing up. And uh, at face value, of course, the fear of God sounds like, you know, um, God is a a scary person, a scary, scary guy, scary entity yep. that's up in the sky with a lot of power. And if he, if he so wished, could destroy me at a moment's notice. Um, I think that that's how most people interpret that term. Right. What, what is it that is meant by the fear of God when we hear, when we see it in the Bible is, is that how we're meant to understand it? Or is there maybe a different way to look at that? Yeah. Well, I, I would speak from my own experience first that I totally get empathize and have, yeah, kind of a foot in the door of that modality of who and how God is, the perception of who and how God is in that respect. So I grew up in a very conservative Christian home in a very conservative Christian church that the fear of God, I, in my experience, um, I was a teenager at the time, but in my experience was very tied to there is a God who is all powerful and is holy. Those are the main two attributes mm -hmm. of God. God is different than you. God is perfect and God is in control of everything. So you better watch out. You better not cry. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and that's not, I mean, it's helpful in the sense of like, I understand at the time what our church and our church senior pastor was trying to do. It's like, you're set apart, be different than the world, da da da, da. This was the 90s, so it was like the height of, or I guess the tail end of the satanic panic right. too. So it's like, we can't be like this. Don't burn all your Christian CDs, blah, 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 blah. Or you're not on Christian CDs. Um, but it isn't the, it's a caricature of, of, scripture of the definition and the the practice of God in scripture. So like the story of the arc of scripture begins with a God who creates out of joy, looks at his creation out of joy and says, this is good. And then walks with his creation, like humans walks with them. That isn't sitting on a throne somewhere else judging and being like these freaking kids, they're going to screw it up. Mm. You know, it's like, this is good. And it's not actually good for them to be alone. I'll walk with them. And then sin and separation begins. But the story in particular of, well, no, the Ark of scripture is God redeeming humanity through love, you know, and through love getting to holiness and, uh, you know, separation as it relates to not just being conformed to the patterns of the world in you know, Romans 12. So fear, especially in Old Testament language, is not like the like, oh my gosh, God is, like you said really well, um, how did you put it? Somewhere else, angry and with the power to kill or harm. Yeah. 
Um, certainly that would be in the back of an ancient theology of how the gods are, right. but the, the experience of um, people with the heart of God, particularly through Moses and the prophets, is like, this is a husband who cares so much about his bride, you know? But that there are consequences for behavior that that hurts that relationship. Mm. So one of the key phrases in um, Ecclesiastes, it's it's actually how the writer of Ecclesiastes finishes out this kind of narrative of, well, everything is meaningless. Like at the end of the day, everything is meaningless. So do whatever you want. And then he ends his narrative in Ecclesiastes uh, of at the end of the day. Fear God and obey his commands, right? So the word isn't like fear, tremble, shy away from, be terrified of. It's a revere. That's the truest translation of that word. It's respect that there is an entity, a divinity, a presence, an energy, a creator. Uh, and for humans understanding a parent, that is different, that is powerful, that is separate, that, that has the ability to speak, breathe the world into existence. That should give you some perspective. So if you get to high on your horse or if ego takes over like take a minute N know your uh, your finitude yeah. in the scale of infinity infinity which is the the power and the energy of god but that god is in partnership and in relationship as well so that's the second part right fear revere the lord revere god and obey his instruction the way that and not just like a religious sense of like oh, i guess i gotta keep these kosher rules or sacrificial rules. It's actually the relational parameters that God's like, here's how we intersect together as finite and infinite, as divine and divinely loved. So yeah, that's what I would say. The fear of God isn't the like, holy cow, you should wake up every day terrified of the power of God and the power of God to kill you. You know, it's just not, it doesn't hold any water. And especially when you see the person of Jesus as like, uh, Jesus is standing, um, beside Pilate, who does have all the power, yeah. right? He represents Caesar, the gods at the time, and says, like, who, who is it that you think you are? You know, and Jesus, like, checks him a little bit and says, listen, your power has been given to you by God, mm. and you have no idea, like, who you're talking to. If I wanted to, I could call down the wrath of heaven, the host of angelic beings that would ruin this whole thing, and he doesn't. Hmm. So there's a good reverence for the divine. Jesus says like, yeah, you've been given power. I respect that. But like, just ego check yourself a little bit here and that your power is very, very finite, limited, and probably only for a few years on this earth. Whereas the power of God is infinite since yeah. the inception of creation to the end of time and whatever that is, like, guess who's in charge and who is in charge is to be respected and revered, but also is love and compassion and joy and grace. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, it seems like that's really borne out in um, scriptural examples people will use to really reinforce that idea of the, the fear, fear of God, yeah. in, in, especially in like the sense that we um, kind of presented it in. Um, when we talk about um, like the plagues in Egypt or um, God, uh, you know, collapsing the Red Sea on top of the Egyptian army shortly after that. Um, to me, that's a great example of how, you know, God's power is sort of continuously ignored, mm -hmm. right? The Pharaoh's time and time again being given greater examples of uh, displays of God's power and his, and his authority. 
Um, and Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and, and ignore that. And, and eventually it results in, you know, the, in, in that great show of power at the Red Sea. Um, and I mean, that's a fascinating one too. Like all of with, I think without exception, all of the plagues are monikers and caricaturization of the Egyptian gods at the time. Mm. So God is using is like, these are the things that you worship, that you deify. I'm going to use them to like show you the, their lack of power and how they'll turn on you. Like follow the one true God, you know? That's so interesting. Yeah. Like playing into their mythology. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so this question was was likely prompted by the story of Ananias, uh, Ananias and Sapphira in yeah. in the book of Acts. Yeah, Acts five, five. Yep. But there we also have this example of this couple that uh, have committed a pretty um, a pretty dramatic uh, encroachment, I think, on um, respect towards God and His community. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you wanted to speak to that uh, in any detail here. Um, for those who are interested, this question was answered as part of our our teaching um, during the Q and A session. But yeah, if you want to give it an overview of of that, situation. sure. It's a tough story. Um, it really is. It's a problematic text, and so I, yeah, even reviewing it for the series and for Q and A, there's no part of me when I read Acts chapter five is like, okay, I get it. Yeah, good, good. I'm like, ah, why, huh? It seems so different and counter to the ideology, methodology, and ethic of Jesus. I wonder what's happening here. Um, so the the story is, is right before in Acts, the end of Acts chapter 4, we read that Barnabas, who is obviously like a wealthy person in some way, shape, or fashion, sells a field and gives the proceeds to the community, which has been the, the marker of their gathering, is this group of people that want to practice this new way of life with God and Jesus are like, I think we should probably take care of each other and take care of the poor. So how will we do that? We'll need to sell off some of our stuff in order to share resources and care for this growing body of people. So Barnabas is, uh, well, he's actually not first up, but he's like a very specific name. In Acts chapter two, it says like, that's how they gathered. They, they sold off a bunch of their stuff and then contributed to the center. Um, but then in Barnabas, we get a real live human being with a name who will then become a traveling companion of Paul, who is like, I'm all in, let's do this. He sells a field and sells a, a field and gives it to them. And then in Acts chapter five, we read Ananias and Sapphira, which is really interesting. Ananias is a name that comes up a number of times in the New Testament for different people. And the word Ananias means uh, um, uh, encourager of joy is the uh, definition of Ananias. And then Sapphira is w one who shines God's light. So, which is also phraseology that's used in Leviticus mm. to, to demonstrate people who are trying to understand God and trying to worship God and trying to be part of a community. So anytime reading Acts chapter five, if you were a good Jewish boy or girl, we reference this in the teaching too, you would immediately be like, oh, hey, whoa, this is a repeat story, or it's a nuanced story based on like a number of different Old Testament stories. So anyway, as the story goes, uh, Ananias comes first and says, I did the same thing, basically, and this is a paraphrase, but I did the same thing as Barnabas. Yay, here's some money. Peter says, you're lying. Like you, you're, you're lying and you're withholding um, what you say is a value to this community. Like you're not, upholding what the movement of God by the spirit. And, and by the way, you haven't just lied to us. The first thing that Ananias is, uh, 
accused of is Satan has filled your heart. So Satan has entered your spirit, not the spirit, right? Second, you've lied not to us, but to the spirit, like to the the energy of this new movement. Um, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Um, and then the most shocking thing is then uh, after Peter's rebuke, Ananias just like drops dead in front of them. Um, so there's a couple of different translation um, issues that are there. Uh, I believe in the NLT or NIV, it says that uh, um, God struck him down. It's not actually what the Greek text says. The Greek text, uh, more of a plain reading, um, and I am by no means an expert in Greek, but in researching for this topic, it says that um, he, Ananias, uh, fell down like asleep or fell down dead and yielded his soul or spirit. So the text does not actually say that God killed them, right? Ananias nor Sapphira. It just says due to the, and this is, these are my words, the shock of the scenario, they fell down um, dead. So yeah, it, again, though, that doesn't get us out of the, the, the deep, weeds because it's still two people that have been interrupted by the shock of what they've done wrong and die as a result yeah so um and then the next in verse six i believe it is uh luke comments that great fear gripped the community and it is the word fear it's not the word reverence it's the word like we are terrified oh my goodness look at the gravity of um the impact of the spirit and what happens, they're extrapolating to what happens if we don't obey. Mm. So that's a long-winded overview. Yeah. It's a troublesome text. I don't love it. Yeah. Um, so to 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 recap, uh, this idea that we are meant to fear God mm-hmm. uh, because he's scary uh, and prone to smiting people <laughs> yeah. is maybe... Uh, better interpreted as um fear of god means to have respect for a god reverence. who controls reverence and re- yeah reverence for a, the god who controls everything who has the power to do anything yeah but who ultimately um loves his people loves all people yeah um and and yeah a healthy amount of reverence is due to him who yeah who oversees all of it yeah, and then counter to that is the the writing of John. He references sort of the fear that the earliest disciples, not the movement of the church, but the disciples are and have experienced at the hands of Rome and says, and you guys probably know this, perfect love mm. casts out all fear. Not reverence, fear, panic, anxiety, trepidation, like, Again, he he mounts love as the principal attribute of who God is, out of which all of the other attributes flow. So that's the troublesome part of reading the majority of the Gospels and epistles that reference God as love, grace, including the Gentiles, and then this really interruptive and disturbing text in Acts chapter 5 that's like, what is happening there? So where I would lean personally um, is is what you just said, is like, actually, God loves all people people yeah but then it's our exercise then it's our work to do to say okay well then 
with a Jesus hermeneutic, a Jesus filter, how do we look at Acts 5? Do we just go, I don't know, God gets to kill people sometimes, I guess. Mm. I don't love that. Um, yeah. Or do we say, well, what's going on in the text? And if we overlay a Jesus hermeneutic and a Jesus, a high Christology onto the text, did God kill them? No. Hmm. Uh, but was it a tragic experience filled with shock and devastating consequences? Yes. Hmm. What I find interesting is the um, the struggle that comes with translating these works mm-hmm. um, and losing some of the language and some of the of the culture because there's contextually you can kind of read and hear that the fear kind of means different things like there's the classic example of the four type versions of love like there's like mm-hmm. you know like eros which yeah. is a romantic love agape like the um like self-sacrificial wholehearted love and i think we have a better context for that right to say that like i love my wife i love my dog there's a difference in love there yeah. but it's kind of going through there's also kind of different levels of fear that you see like there's lots of fear of the lord as in reverence awe but then there are times when you know when um he's uh, on top of the mountain with moses and he's uh doing the 10 commandments like it says people were watching the flashes of lightning and hearing the thunder and they were they felt fear the word is terrifying yeah because that's terrifying like Mm. that's a human response but earlier in the bible um there uh when adam and eve uh, are in the garden they eat the fruit and they realize that they're naked and they hide from god it says um uh, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. But there's, that's a fear of, it's not so much of like, there's something scary. Yeah. It's a fear of disappointment. It's well, very relational. Or embarrassment. Embarrassment yeah. and ashamed is probably a better rendering of that text. They weren't like afraid because God has never punished anything. So what's to be afraid of, you know? So we do need to extrapolate a little further of like, the, it, the text says it exactly right. Is What are they afraid of? Well, they're not afraid, they're ashamed because they're naked. They're not afraid of God. They're like, oh my goodness, our private bits are out. This feels awkward. What if God sees us? What if we see each other? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I agreed. The, we're reading, anytime we come to the written word, we're reading an ancient text in ancient now defunct languages and trying to interpret the, those through current, like, ideologies, cultural nuance. Yeah. And a relatively new language that we speak. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting also just to consider all of this through the lens of like the world that we know and that we understand, right? It, it seems to be that we don't live in a world with a God who is throwing lightning bolts down all the time. Um, this story of Ananias and Sapphira is a difficult one because it's such a rare Man, it seems like exactly that. This is, well, they're just hit by a lightning bolt. What's going on? We don't have other context to help us understand this passage. Um, And and so I think what's borne out in that really is that like God is, you know, God is certainly capable of doing something on this scale, but does he? Does he do this regularly? Certainly not. Right. Totally. Yeah. And it's, 
the the narrative of the rest of Acts just treats it so like, well, move on. Because then we get to Acts chapter 6, and it's not like that that chapter or the chapters after are like referring back to or journaling through what just happened. They're like, oh yeah, no, we're moving on to like the spirits at work. And now we're about to see another version of death through the stoning of Stephen. Right. So it's it's the converse of like, lest you think just God will cause death, humanity will very soon um, for the, as a rebuttal, as a pushback against this, the cause of Jesus and these early apostles. So it's two chapters that are met with predicated on death from very, very different, uh, um, different vantage points. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of fun read. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to look forward to getting back into Acts a little bit later in the year. Mm-hmm. Um, let's move on to another question. So this one, uh, Paul is introduced to us in the in the mm-hmm. book of Acts, mm-hmm. but he doesn't write the book of Acts. Right. Um, what we do find with Paul's writings, however, and I think that's where this question was sort of prompted, is... Paul seems to have a very different style in a lot of ways than Jesus when it comes to teaching. Yeah. Um, Jesus represents a very, a very um, subversive, uh, counter countercultural certainly to the the to his time period um, perspective on. Um, how the law is to, to be interpreted, yeah. um, how one is to live their life. Um, I think just generally the approach that is taken towards uh, uh, understanding the law and, and rules just in general, whereas Paul has a m- far more structured, yeah. we could say uh, in some cases legalistic approach to th- what life a life of faith is meant to look like. Yeah. How are we meant to hold those two uh, styles in contrast? Because they do feel at times like they're very much at odds. Yeah. Well, I think um, we have to like translate Paul through Jesus and not the other way around, Mm -hmm. Um, which we mentioned in the Q&A teaching as well. And I think that we've gotten a little bit twisted in contemporary Christian culture, church culture of like, we, we use Paul to understand Jesus, you know, like we'll start with the epistles or the pastoral letters and we're like, okay, we get how to do church. Uh, and I would say, and in good Anabaptist tradition, it's like, no, get to the heart first, start with Jesus. And we interpret, um, Paul through Jesus, not the other way around, you know, because you're right. Like Paul comes from a rigid pharisaical law-based tradition which is actually a gift to the church later on because paul is trying to provide some parameters and organizational capability Hmm. through which the church can then better flourish right like paul's not a detriment to the church his heart is for the church he's given up all of his rights and privileges and spends most of his ministry in prison or running you know so he's not a power monger anymore but he's also like hey listen like Jesus has appointed me to this apostolic work to help and how I can help based on my gifts and talents. These are my words based on my gifts, talents, and abilities is to provide some more theological framework. Um, Paul is well and deeply educated. All of the earliest disciples are not Mm. right. So we're getting a contrast of 
experience. So I think it's it's um, the brilliance of the Spirit of God about, yeah, we'll use both. People who are willing, like country bumpkins who are willing to leave the trades of their fathers to just get the message out, empowered by the Spirit, no ego, all the zeal. And then Paul, tons of ego, tons of experience, tons of education. And so with the disciples, Jesus promotes the disciples to a higher level, right? With the with Paul, Jesus brings Paul down from the higher level, knocks him off a horse, has a vision, says, you're persecuting me. And then he spends a few days blind, can't even speak, doesn't eat. And I think that's the ego check that, that God is, um, through Jesus, like dismounting the powerful and mount, like propping up the, the marginalized. You know what I mean? The danger though, is that when we treat, when we over-prioritize Paul as the principal agent for understanding what the church is and isn't, should be and should not be. It's helpful, but it's not like, again, we have to start with the words, teaching ethic, life of Jesus in order to better understand Paul. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We talked a little bit um, in preparation for this about the difference between legalism and orthodoxy. Yeah. And um, I think what certainly the pharisaical tradition represents during Jesus's time on earth is pretty squarely in the, in the camp of, of legalistic Mm -hmm. of, um, the letter of the law over the spirit of the law. Um, whereas like you said, Paul, Paul's aim is to, uh, give Jesus's teaching some, uh, I guess maybe some practical parameters or guidelines, uh, advice for daily life. Yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, like how 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 would we draw this this contrast out further? Or maybe it's helpful to define orthodoxy. Sure. Yeah. Um. It's a, yeah. The the Pharisaical tradition started like it just so devolved in first century Judaism as it related like during the time of Jesus, because it actually uh, centered religion uh, and code of conduct and decentered people, which is not how it started. Like the Pharisees were a, uh, out of a rabbinic law tradition that said, we, we have been so gifted by the letter of the law from the hand, literally the hand of God and the tradition of our elders. We got to keep to this because there are so many competing ideas, philosophies, and religion if we're not centered on this, we'll lose it. You know, we'll become syncretistic. We'll just blend a bunch of stuff. We'll be nothing different than the, the polytheists, you know? So again, started with a wonderful heart. Yeah. Like, let's keep to it. Keep to it. Be reminded of the faith of our father's ancestors, the tradition of our elders. Wonderful. But religion does terrible things when it puts at the center a code of conduct, rules, rites, and rituals. Like nothing good happens there. You know, as opposed to relationship, other centeredness and like caring for other, like just being other centered, mm-hmm. you know? So um, it's not surprising then that in current Christian tradition, when you focus on the code of conduct, rules, rituals, um, and restrictions of Paul in the church today, that legalism is naturally birthed. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, let's do it. It's like, well, which part? What do we, why? Yes. You know, and help show me Jesus. Show me Jesus first. Not yeah. Paul, not Leviticus, show me Jesus first. Yeah. You know? 
Um, and I think when we don't do that, when we say, well, it's all the same, like, let's go to Galatians, which is one of the, another tough book to read. In my opinion, there's lots of good in there, but it's also a spicy one. Or Leviticus, like we can lose the plot real quick, you know? Yeah. And so, you you framed it like even the Levitical law, which I think obviously would be more, even more difficult for us today, but within its context, within its historical context, uh, cultural, uh, geographical context yep. at the time, it made a lot more sense and was far more valuable to the people that were were uh interacting with the law or 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 applying the law yeah. daily um that is so important to our, our our understanding of it today or should be so important to our understanding of today but oftentimes uh the the legalizing of uh new testament language um can fall into the same sort of pitfalls that it did for the the pharisees in, in jesus's day right yeah um what we yeah totally i think uh again coming back to how we started this conversation in my tradition i remember did you guys like grow up in churches that did communion? Like absolutely, yeah. Regularly, okay, yeah. So, did you ever? Were you ever part of a church service that like threw the weight of the danger of judgment if you don't come to the communion table with the right heart? Did you ever experience that? I I feel like that's something I worried about at one point or another. Yeah. Was like, I remember being young and being told like I couldn't participate until I was really ready, and I had no idea what that meant. Yeah. And I think I probably spent years holding off because I was worried oh my gosh, about whether I was that. ready or not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, like Paul does say in First Corinthians 11, you, you risk the judgment of God, you know, if you come to the table with a impure heart, mm. you know, so that's legalism and it's a misinterpretation of the text. When you hear from a paid professional holy person that's inviting you to the table of Christ you know, the symbols of sacrifice and love, new covenant. And you say, by the way, if you do this with any shred of sin in your heart, he's coming to get you. Yeah. You know, that's not what it's about. First Corinthians 11 is these people were meal sharing. They picked up the mantle of the early church that like we eat together, you know, and Paul just before reminding people of the Eucharist, the, the, the Passover meal says, listen, you rich people, You've brought your own food for your own people and you hog it and you don't let the poor come to the table. So I tell you, when we share this meal together, that is a reminder of the sacrifice and the love of this new covenant. And you do it with ego as the primary, like I want to make sure I get my food and I'm first at the table. Yeah. You risk the judgment of God. So again, Paul is decentering religion saying, no, we have to be able to come together and remember the sacrifice of Jesus and be willing to sacrifice for each other in order to do meal sharing, fellowship, covenant fellowship with a pure and like equitable level head and heart. See how different that is than the tradition that I grew up with? Like God's super mad and you better deal with your sin because he's going to make you choke on that cracker if you don't. Yeah. It's crazy legalism that like destroys the heart of the Eucharist in particular, like mm-hmm. the, the body and bread, the meal that we get to come together and celebrate God's love for us in Jesus. Yeah, this is this is pinging for me. Uh, the conversation we had last week about uh, the like bounded set versus centered mm-hmm. set, where we have uh, this thing that's meant to be invitational, this thing that's meant to be uh, like to break barriers down and to to bring everybody to the table, quite literally, which is centered set, which is 
which is uh yeah centered set right like um versus this bounded set system which seems to be that like yeah if your heart's not in the right place um if you don't ascribe to the right belief system or if you don't yeah, like if you can't check all these different boxes then you don't belong yep. here um it is crazy that things can flip on their head and really work in in quite quite frankly that the polar opposite um yeah absolutely direction of like how they were intended yeah um yeah i i think it's just it's an interesting thing to think about just generally as to why we seem to kind of repeat this mistake um it does seem like this you can follow that pattern in the old testament and if we follow it out to you know church tradition today in a lot of cases we've we've made a lot of the same fumbles totally right yeah and that's the difference between legalism and orthodoxy right like i would contend that orthodoxy which is a the, the Orthodoxy really is just the linchpins on why we do what we do, understanding who God is and how God is for us, mm. right? It's, that's not legalism though, you know? Um, legalism is diving into the minutia of an aspect of orthodoxy that becomes the boundary through which all faith and life enters. And that's so disqualifying for so many. Like orthodoxy and early Christian, well, it's interesting, we were talking before that, um, the, the early church fathers who helped to codify and bring together the canon of scripture as we know it, and then also developed some of the creeds, those central like statements of faith of who and how we are and how we'll change the world through it. Like a good number of them were unapologetic universalists. Mm. Interesting. There's people who are like camping and codifying orthodoxy are also like, yeah, but in the end, everybody gets in because of the love of God. You know, Romans 9, how deep and how wide and how far reaching is the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right. You know, I wonder if that would play today. Yeah. You know, like, would we say, yeah, universalism, there's wide orthodoxy for those brothers and sisters who adhere to universalism. Or would we, with the religious mind, default to legalism? No. Mm -mm. You're not in. Not that, not that idea, not that version of belief. No. There are still boundaries in the sandbox. And if you go outside of them, you're no longer in the sandbox. Yeah. I think uh, ultimately, like boundaries just make people feel so much more comfortable. It reminds you of who you are not. Yeah. And yeah. defaulting to in-group, out-group thinking is like very uh, familiar, I think. It's way easier. Yeah. It's way easier. Yeah. It's way easier to be like, okay, there's the six rules. Great. Yeah. I do think it. it's... Uh, that's it's a great illustration of the intent of orthodoxy in that case that all these universalists are coming to codify a few universalists are coming to codify. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a few a few a few key or uh universalists will say are, are coming to codify this orthodoxy what then is the purpose of the orthodoxy if it's not to establish in group out group yeah. it's to uh like it practically is meant to to be practiced as uh, a way of uh, bringing the world more closer to Jesus, more in line with with Christ, um, making the world a better place. If I can, you know, cheapen it and in in uh, oh, phraseology, great, yeah, um, yeah. The the heart behind orthodoxy and like that's an English word to try and get to what an ancient tradition was, right? It was a group of people, a 
a nationwide movement of Jesus, of the people of the way, who are helping the poor, who are becoming a hospital for the sick, who don't care about rich, like riches and wealth and war, uh, that are like, we got to, we, this is crazy. Like this is taking, so what is it that we believe? Like, let's kind of put a, a bit of a lockdown on these letters and writings that have been helpful, including Old Testament, Paul's letters, the early apostles, Peter, John, James, um, and also some of the traditions that we can, in general, in the common ancient common era, uh, agree upon. That becomes the foundation of orthodoxy. What is it? Just like um, Yahweh gave the commands to Moses and his people, what is the new covenant that Jesus is giving to these people? With that as part of our tradition, you know. So it wasn't a limiting, um, bounded set of rules of like it's this or nothing. It's like, well, there's probably five or six principles that like just always consistently come up and are these guiding, loving forces. So divinity of Jesus, the divinity of, of the Christ, the, the resurrection of the body in Jesus, the hope of salvation eternally for those that follow Jesus, the, the baptism or the presence of the spirit, the triune God, the expression of the relationship of God, the movement of the community of God called the church, uh, and um, the the illumination empowerment of the holy written word as well. And there are more, but those were really the first few things that in creedal definitions of orthodoxy, they're like, okay, mm. we believe in Jesus, the one and only begotten son, eternal, always, forever, born of the virgin, Mary tried under Pontius Pilate, crucified, buried, dead, and then resurrected, and the hope of the life everlasting for the church. Like, that's the... I just had flashbacks to the congregation reciting the Apostles' Creed. Totally. Like, in flat monotone. Oh, yeah. It's just the words that they know, maybe not even... Yeah, it's religious rote. Yeah. It's not like, oh my gosh, like the early church would die for this creedal definition. Yeah. And the contemporary church would sleep yeah. for it. You know, not always, but it's interesting the earliest creed in First Corinthians fifteen, verse three, that the majority of scholars believed bubbled up as a creedal definition of the people of the way within three to five years. Three to five years of the resurrection of Jesus. Oh wow was Jesus is Lord. Yeah. Like popping off all over the Roman Empire. This is a creedal definition of these new people of the way. And Paul refers back to in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, that's the earliest rendering of an ancient creed affirming the lordship, the orthodoxy of the resurrection of the Christ. This did happen. We believe it. We'll stake our lives on it. We're going to get this out we're going to get this out. We could have just stuck with that one. I think it Jesus is Lord puts it nicely. Doesn't yeah. It? Not Caesar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it fits on a coaster. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't want to call this a coincidence, but I think this conversation so beautifully fitting right into the teaching series that we have coming up next churchianity where we're going to be talking all about how the, uh, r- original intent, I think of a lot of uh, these new Testament writings out of the, the work of early church fathers, has really kind of, um, in a lot of ways, been departed from in what we see in in modern Christianity and modern yep. Christian uh, faith traditions. Yep. Um, so super excited to to dig into those conversations. Yeah, the challenge of being a more Christ-like Christian. Yeah. Yep. And 
Jimmy, thanks so much for being here today to answer some of these questions. If you enjoyed this, if you have questions for Jimmy, for me, for anybody else that you see regularly on the podcast, you can send those questions into ask at themeetinghouse.com and we'd love to do this again. For sure. But until next time, friends, this has been The Common Room and we'll see you next time.